Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Van. With me is the mad lad himself, Justin Mason. I, I think I already did that one. That's okay. How you doing, man? How you doing, my man? I'm, I'm awesome, Dan. It's, you know, it's just like, uh, just like I tell you every week. Great to be back for Great another episode back. of the podcast. Love to be a part of this project, man. Something I definitely believe in and can get behind. This week is Chapter 8 of the Aeronauts Windless from Jim Butcher. Spire Ab- Albion, Habble Morning, Ventilation Tunnels. Are we uh, we jumping into this? Let's hit it. Let's do it. Summary. Summary. There was no time to react. Oh, okay. So before we go into it, remember last week, guys, we got, where were we at the end of the last chapter? Last time on Random Book Club Podcast, Captain Grimm just got shot in the chest, right? Yeah, it was spicy. And so we're in the ventilation tunnels. It's dark. Him and Bayard are together. And yeah. stuff's getting real. It's about to get spicy. Do you mind if I read the uh, you mind if I read the first paragraph? Please do. There was no time to react and no room to wield even the short, straight blade of his sword. Grim fell before the horrible, painful weight and thrust at it with an arm, shoving something that snarled and spit and drew blood with teeth and claws. This creature. The creature was perhaps the size of a large child. It flew up and away from him. Grim! I'm fine, Grim snapped, rolling swiftly to his feet. He tore his jacket from his shoulders and wrapped it swiftly around his left arm. Cats? I think not. No cat ever made a sound like that. That's right, Bayard. With the... That's pretty spicy. Yeah, that's a, I thought that was a good opener. Because oh, yeah. uh, it just basically continues what happened in the, at the end of the last chapter. But mm-hmm. we are now like in a situation where it's like, oh, these are the weird creatures for sure. This is confirmed now. And Bayard is like, I've never heard a cat sound like this. So Bayard and Grimm find themselves in a nearly blind fight against unknown creatures. Grimm guesses that they may be cats, like you just read, but Bayard is quick to point out that no cats make sound like that. Grimm tears off his jacket and quickly wraps around his wounded arm. The pair go back to back, preparing for another charge from the unknown assailants. I like this. This builds the uh, history between Bayard and Grimm. We got two guys going back to back. You don't do that with somebody you don't know. That typically doesn't happen. It typically happens between brothers in arms. Yep. And uh, I like that because it showed us more about their relationship without actually beating you over the head with a big old description about it. I like. And that. of course, for readers like myself, I love <clears throat> to go into my little canon universes of times in the Academy with Bayard Grimm, where they had to go against each other in the dueling practice arena or something like that, or go with each other against groups of other candidates and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, for it's, sure. it's cool. In the midst of this chaotic situation, the two share some witty gallows humor. Oh, so, I loved this. So this is uh, from the book. I should be friends with taller people as they go back to back. Yeah, yeah. I should be friends with taller people, Grim panted. Bite your tongue, old boy, or I'll hack apart your ankles. I loved it because he's basically saying, oh, you're saying I'm short? Fine, I'll, I'll hack apart your ankles. I just thought that was good. It was just like a good... Awesome witty thing to say while you're actually in danger so obviously they're no uh uh like they've been in danger together before grim hears noise accompanied with another motion in the darkness and a creature flew at him and bit on his now leather clad arm because he wrapped his leather jacket around it 
He spun to his left and smashed the thing against the spire's wall. Thrusting his right arm repeatedly with his sword, he hears the thing's warbling shriek, a sound like nothing he has heard before. Which is saying something. Behind him, he could hear a victorious cry from Bayard, as it seemed he had, a, had better luck against his opponent. Grim couldn't turn to his friend. The creature was still biting and thrashing, even though the thick layers, leather layers... Uh, it was biting. It was still biting into his arm. Grim hacked and slashed at the thing with his sword, hoping he hadn't misjudged the shape or the size of the creature in case he had hacked at his own arm. But he could feel splashes of blood from the wounds his blade inflicted. This was a very gruesome scene. Dude, I loved this. This was our first really spicy scene. And it's got me like, it's like, okay. You know how sometimes <clears throat> when you watch a horror movie, you're just kind of like, what the hell? What is that thing? You know, like you're trying to see it. You're looking for anything, right? That's what I was this like. Was, Dude, this was exactly what like is that. this? Yeah. It was, yeah, this is great. But whatever it is, it's bleeding and it's bleeding hard. So, you know, it's about to die, right? I mean, that's what you're thinking. Finally, the thing let out another scream and then it departed abruptly. He could hear the wails from the retreating creatures echoing further and further down the halls as he instinctively found himself at Bayard's side again. Once the pair knew the encounter was over, they exchanged small words of victory, proclaiming the attackers were cowards, but both agreed that they should get a move on as soon as possible. Bayard tells Grimm to hold up a moment while he pulls out a fingernail-sized lumen crystal, which gives them and us a better view of the aftermath illuminated by a pale blue light. So basically, the, the battle's done. Bayard and um, Grimm... Well, Bayard's saying those guys are cowards, and Grimm's like, absolutely they are. Shouldn't we be running now? Like, that. I think that's what he says in the book. It was just funny. Like, And Bayard's like, I completely agree, but let me just pull out a light real quick. So this is from the book. This is the description we get now that we have the scene illuminated, because it was previously, like, almost pitch black. The tunnel was unsightly. Blood that looked black in the pale light was splattered everywhere, more near Grimm than Bayard. God in heaven, you're a sight, Bayard said, lifting an eyebrow. There's more blood than man. He looked past Grimm to the heavily splat to the heavy splatters on the wall. My word, old boy, you missed your calling as a butcher. Tried, Grimm said, but I couldn't manage. Had to settle for the fleet. So I, I liked that little scene there. We see that there's just a ton of blood around, uh, around and, uh, Grimm. On yeah. and around Grimm, and then on the wall where he was slashing and hacking at that thing. And, uh, yeah, it's just cool to see Bayard, like, mention that. So the two discuss the best way to get out of these tunnels. Grimm wants to get his arm looked at but would rather wait to unwrap the wound until they know they are in a, in a uh, place to get it fixed properly. And Bayard agrees. Before they can get started, Grimm thinks that Bayard falls over, but in reality, it was him beginning to pass out. Yeah, he's like, I yeah, he's like tripping out. He's losing his mind. It's like, why are you moving? Mm-hmm. So this is from this is how they describe it in the book. His friend hadn't fallen. This is from Grimm's perspective. His friend okay. hadn't fallen. Grimm had. He could distantly feel the cold spire stone floor beneath his cheek. Bayard's mouth was moving, but the words seemed to be coming at him from several hundred yards down the tunnel, and he couldn't quite make them out. 
Grim tried to put a hand beneath him and push himself up, but his limbs wouldn't move. Bother, Grim mumbled. This is rather inconvenient. Bayard leaned down and peered closely at Grim's face. The last thing Grim remembered of the movement, of the moment, was the feeling of being hoisted up onto Bayard's slim, wiry shoulders. For just a second during this part, I was concerned because I thought Bayard was going to be, like, bad. Mm. I thought he was going to, like, lean down to him like, we got you, didn't we? Or ah. something like that. I thought there would be, like, that as he's passing out, there'd be, like, that moment. And then I'm like, I hope not because I kind of like this buddy-buddy mechanic they had going on there. So, I like, Grim's got to have a friend. He's got to have at least one friend. And uh, so I was happy to see that that did happen at this time, but uh, that was going through my mind. Yeah, so, so then we get a chapter break, or like a first mm-hmm. kind of... A know, location break. Yeah. What did you think of the first part here? This was awesome. So this was a great way to start the chapter off, continuing the action from the end of the previous chapter. It gave you the satisfactory conclusion to that action, lets you know what was going on. You have questions leading you into the next part, saying, what was that? What's going on? And now we can get moving on Grimm's storyline. Let's find what's, who's he going to meet, what's going to happen, who is Baird, how is he important, and what's going to happen going forward. Now it's pushing us towards that. Yes, uh, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah. Something that That's we good. talk about sometime uh, when we're, we're talking about writing and stuff is the promises and payoffs. We had, we had discussed that Thank earlier. And here we get two mini payoffs at the beginning of this chapter, and I want to go over them. So directly after the fight against the unknown creatures, after the pair feel safe that the battle is over, Bayard pulls out a small lumen crystal, and we as the readers get to see a view of the scene. Of course, Grimm is full of blood, but the description of Bayard was almost as interesting to me. Bayard himself was scarcely must from the action. His sword, though, was stained dark to half the length of his blade. So if we remember back to chapter seven, last last episode. I know. Let me, can I predict where you're going before please. you go there? Now, this is how well I know you. Let's see if I'm right. And if yep. I'm wrong, please tell me I'm wrong. Previously on Random Book Club Podcast, the boys discussed how Baird is better in a duel than Grimm. And this just proves Baird is better with a sword than Grimm. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. So would you call this, would you call this a promise and a payoff? Yes, I would. And what I like about it is it's, it's not like a bit like, you know, we talk about writing and stuff like that. And something that I would love to do is be able to write like Jim Butcher does or even write at all. But something that is very difficult is like, okay, we need promises and payoffs. How do you do that? This is a wonderful example of how to do a small little version of that i'll tell you what this small promise and small well it's it's kind of a big promise because you would maybe like to see those two fight but it's a <clears throat> it's a small promise with a small payoff and i'll tell you what this does this instills your sense of trust into the writer it makes you think okay i'm eight chapters in. they're going to give me something to be excited about they're going to give me things they're going to give me conclusions to things that i want they're going to show me that they're not just full of shit as a writer they're going to show me that hey if they promise me that this guy is better than this guy they're going to show it and they're going to give that to me they're going to give me that payoff and it instills a better sense of trust in the writer for the reader 
Well said, my man. Well said. So uh, when we first meet Bayard, Grimm gets a little annoyed with his friend pointing out that his ship, Predator, can barely stay afloat. Don't make me duel you, Grimm said. Why on earth not? Bayard continues. You'd lose and we both know it. Grimm snorted. You're a true tradesman of violence, my stiff-necked friend. So um, continuing on with the chapter, we get a wonderful scene setting. So Grimm opened his eyes and found himself. Oh, never mind. That's a, that's a, that's the next part. But going back to the, you're a true tradesman of violence, my stiff necked friend. So we've got, these are the two promises and payoffs. The first one is that Bayard is a great swordsman because when they described him, he was pretty much clean and looked not really, how did they word it? Muffed? Musked. 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 Uh, when, Yo, uh, my, my grandma and Yeah. My grandma and grandpa used to say, don't must your hair. Don't mess up. That means don't mess up your hair. Don't okay. must your hair. Oh, don't must your clothing. You'll must your clothing. They used to say that all the time. So except for his sword, which was stained dark to half the length of his blade. So he is doing very precise freaking viper shots on these things. And he's being victorious because in the beginning of the battle, we heard you know, Bayard go, yeah, or aha, got him. You know what I mean? Kind of thing. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, we got the description of Grimm's situation, which blood on him, blood around him, blood splatter on the wall, saying that you missed your calling as a butcher. And in the previous chapter saying, you're a true tradesman of violence, my stiff necked friend. So even though he was being bit down on through the leather, could feel it tearing at him, he still managed to, I mean, he didn't kill the thing. It, it scampered off, but there was so much blood and gore around it. I really liked it. So just in the same reasons that you're saying, it's a it's a promise and a payoff that makes you feel like, yes, we've got a good writer here. I'm going to enjoy reading this, you know? So I like that. I like the, the mini promise and payoff there. You know, the big promise is Grimm's a down and out captain. We're going to see him hopefully rise back up somehow. And... Um, that's fine, but that's going to take the whole freaking book. You know what I mean? To learn that all can these I, little, can I, can, I just, can I just say something? Yeah. That's why I love this podcast. Dude. Love it. Every episode we find a reason. why we, Reason number 1001. This is why I love yeah. this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on. Continuing with the chapter and we, um, get a wonderful scene setting here. The setting's really <laughs> awesome. Do you want to read the first two paragraphs? Of, it starts with Grimm opened his eyes. You got it. Grimm opened his eyes and found himself in a warm, dim room. The ceiling was made of hardened clay, one of the most common construction materials for, for the most modest residences within Spire Albion. It had been painted white, but instead been covered with a colorful, rather fanciful mural that looked like it had been done by a particularly enthusiastic child. It made little sense containing seemingly random images of airships, the sun, some sort of odd-looking plants that oddly that only partially resemble trees, and an image of the moon that was much too large in relation to the sun opposite it. Strange creature occupies the same space, none of them familiar to Grimm, though he might have seen some of them in his more fanciful childhood storybooks. The room was lit by dozens and dozens and dozens of tiny, nearly dead lumen crystals collected in jars of clear glass, their light was a nebulous thing, showing 
everything clearly and seemingly originating from nowhere. It was a small spare chamber sporting a student's desk and a small overstuffed bookshelf. He lay on a bed of woven ropes with a thin pad over them and blankets that had been piled over him until they more threatened to smother him than keep him warm. So I really like that description. Let's go. You know exactly where you're at, except, you know, in the beginning when it first says, um, the ceiling was made of hardened clay, one of the most common construction materials for the more modest residences in Spire Albion. I thought, oh, this is where, this is the hideout that Spire Arc is at. I'd say that this, that first description of the ceiling was maybe the only part that felt a little out of place for me. Again, I'm not criticizing the description. It's damn good. But what I'm saying is look at everything else. It almost felt like it didn't quite fit in, but the actual, once you just blend the whole description together, you're like, Oh shit, I'm in the room, dude. Well, at first I thought that maybe this is, you know, Bayard was going to take him to where the spire arc was. You know, yeah, yeah. like Spire Arc's not in the mansion. We got to go someplace else. So where is someplace mm-hmm. else? And then we see him wake up to this like common thing, you know, this common residence seemingly at first. But then it's not just some safe house. This actually seems like a lived in house as portrayed by the murals on the wall, like some some kids drawing on the walls like they're in a place that they had to go to in a hurry. And probably the like the people that he's the guest of weren't expecting him. So he's, mm-hmm. he's up in some kid's room or something like that. He's in a spare room. So Grim wakes up in this strange place. He looks down and sees that his left arm was bound to his chest and had been bandaged up. The one that got injured. Yeah. Funnily enough, with many types of multicolored pat and patterned cloth bandages, including one strip with little pink heart shapes, alternating with bright yellow suns. So I like that a lot. I thought that was pretty cool. This tough, hard-ass guy that was just smothered in blood and gore from one of his uh, combatants is now wearing multicolored like bandages with hearts and suns on them. It's a it's a really nice. It's it's nice because one you you, you get the, you get the feeling that whoever patched him up either didn't know what they were doing or was in a hurry, but also it's a cool like dichotomy to have tough guy grim wearing something not tough at all and you also it also makes you think like what if he walked out into the market right now bandaged up like that that'd be funny as hell he winced from the pain from many minor wounds he hadn't realized that he had received when he sat up grim then noticed the uh smell of ointment and that he was very thirsty he found a pitcher of water and a mug on the nightstand and drank three mugs full Then someone tapped on the door and stepped in. Enter a new character. Grim looked up to see a young woman enter the room. She was dressed, not so much untidily, he decided, as randomly. Her gray shirt was made of ether silk, patched in several places, and looked as though it had been tailored for a man almost 200 pounds heavier than she was. Though the shirt was long enough to serve as a gown itself, she wore a green undergown with rustling skirts that fell to the floor. As she walked toward him, he saw that she wore stockings instead of shoes, green and white polka dots on one foot and orange and purple stripes on the other. She wore an apron, but it looked like it looked to be made of leather and was burned in several places, a smith's garment rather than kitchenware. 
Her hair had been dyed in crimson and white stripes, and then braided so that it resembled a peppermint candy. One lens of her spectacles was pink, the other green, and the band of her too large top hat was fairly bursting with folded pieces of paper. She wore a necklace from which depended a glass vial of nearly spent illumination crystals, and she carried a covered tray in her arms. So, so we've got a very odd character here. So we got a weirdo. We got weirdo a weirdo. Alert. What was your first impressions of this character? I don't even know who this is. And I like them already. Okay. I, I was reading this. I was like, yeah, this is the kind of shit I'd do. Yeah. I, I would, I would build a character like this. And I, yeah, I loved it. This was awesome. Had my attention just weird enough that I'm like, okay, who the hell is this? It's gotta be some magic or some freaking like just yep. magical hack or some kook or something. We'll see. So I had the opposite reaction for whatever reason. Uh, my first impression, I feel like it should be charming. Like you're, you're saying it was very charming and endearing for me. I found it annoying for some reason that they went into such detail about everything she's wearing and it's all nonsense. I think the issue was for me personally, I had difficulty thinking of what it was, you know, if, if she just, if they had just said that she was wearing a, like. A, a tailored suit meant for someone that was overweight. Okay, I got that. But then underneath it, it's an undergown of green, and it's like, is the is the gown itself a real gown underneath the suit, or is it an actual thing called an undergown? What's an undergown? You know. Then I started thinking of that, and then it goes on to stockings, one being striped, one being polka dotted, and then it goes into her hair being crimson with stripes of white, but then it's curled to be pepper. I was like, it was too much for my brain. And so I, I, I to, to me, it came off as, okay, okay, we're good on the description. She's a weirdo. And then they go into the spectacles and how the spectacles have different colors. And that confuses me later on when Grim looks at her eyes. Okay. Is he seeing different color eyes because of the spectacles or because her actual eyes are, it, it was too much for me, but I know people love this character. This character is well-loved in the uh, Cinder Slayers community. This character is my kink. Oh, hell yeah. All right. (laughs) So she also speaks weird. And it's very similar to her style of clothing. It's kind of random. So here's from the book. Oh, she said, pausing. He's awake. Goodness. That was unexpected. So, like, who's she talking to? She tilted her head, peering at him at first, one lens of her spectacles, and then through the other. There, you see, he's fine. He's not mad, except that he is. And I should know. She carried on. She carried the tray to a small table against one wall and whispered, Should we tell him how improper it is for a gentleman not to wear a shirt when there is a young lady present? Dan. Yes. The spectacles are magical. The spectacles are magical? That's your guess? That's my prediction. Because she looks through oh, one okay. and she goes through one. through one and sees something else. Oh. I mean, or she's just crazy. She's not. Okay. Predict, there's my prediction. It isn't that we don't appreciate the view because he's quite masculine, but it does seem like something one should say. So she's like talking to herself, but she's talking to something. Yeah. Grim struggles to hold a conversation with the girl and tries to get some straight answers from her, but it becomes obvious that that is not going to happen. She reveals that he has been poisoned and that her master helped cure him. She gives him a bowl of soup and that, that has medicine in it. 
Grim seems to recognize something in her eyes and grabs her arm to stop her from moving and asks her to look at him. She reluctantly gives him a quick glance and he notices that one eye is gray and the other pale apple green. So this is where I or yeah, pale apple green. This is where I was like, is this her lenses that are the different color or are these her actual eyes? Mm-hmm. And so this was another reason why I was like, what is going on? Then he asks who she is talking to and through her odd response, he realizes that she is something called an etherealist. So we get a new class type here. This is what you were talking about of um, she's magical or something. Uh, so now that she has confirmed that Grimm is alive and awake, she departs to fetch her master. Grimm sits at the desk and eats the soup and downs two more mugs of water and feels almost human after that. He sees a plain robe and puts it on one-handed. Grimm then hears a thud at the door, followed by pained curses from an old man. The girl opens the door for him, and we meet our master etherealist. Ah! Damnation to you! Folly! Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that? So that is from the book. That's exactly what he says. Damnation to you, because he hits the the door so hard that he makes his nose bleed. But we we haven't met him yet, you know what I mean? We just hear a thud at the door just as soon as Grimm puts on his robe. And he goes, damnation to you, Folly! That is the char- the girl character's name, and he introduces her. But it's kind of funny because Folly is also something like, it is it is almost like a curse in its own way. You know what I mean? Like, like Folly. Like a, like a bother almost. Yes, bother. I hit the door again. Folly, you know? So I, I like that double. I don't know what it, what that is called, but when you use the one word to mean two things, potentially, you know? The double entendre. I'm not sure if that's it. Um, no. I, I can't think of what it's called, what that style is called, but I like that, especially with this character and these two yes. characters. It works really well because of the way their mind works. So I, I like that quite a bit. So here's the description of the man. A man entered the room holding a rumpled handkerchief against his apparently bleeding nose. He was a scrawny specimen, except for a small pot belly, and it made his limbs look out of proportion, almost spidery. His hair was a dirty gray mop, his face covered by sparse white stubble. He was dressed in a suit about two decades out of date, in a sober in sober shades of brown and gray, and large, soft slippers of some kind of creature with green and black striped fur. Too old to be middle-aged, too young to be elderly, the man had eyes that were a vibrant shade of blue Grimm had only seen in the autumn skies high above the mists. The man walked with the aid of a wooden cane tipped with what might have been a weapons crystal from a ship's light cannon. It was the size of a man's clenched fist. So we get this old man walking in with his cane and it's got an old weapon crystal on the top as big as a guy's fist. And he's just walking in, you know, with holding his nose as it's bleeding. So he's crazy too. This man introduces himself, introduces himself as Ephrus Ephrenus. Ferris. <laughs> it was pretty funny, but we are just going to call him Master Ferris here. And the girl's name is Folly. He requests that Folly fetch him sweaters, two pairs of sock, one of them wool, and a gentleman's hat soaked in vinegar. So he's just as weird as Folly. And maybe weirder. And he has an issue with doors. So we've got a couple of weirdos here. <laughs> So Captain Grimm and Ferris attempt a normal conversation. 
And we learned that Grimm is very patient with Etherealists for some reason. So that was something that I got from this. Once Grimm realized that Folly was an Etherealist, oh, dear child, I, I didn't realize you were an Etherealist or whatever he says. Then he becomes like really patient. And that leads more, that that lends more um, like credence or, or like, it lends more weight to these characters because yeah. instead of just being weirdos, there's something to be almost like not revered, but like respected and Grimm yeah. respects them. So if Grimm is respecting something, then you know, there's something more to it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, master Ferris says that the poison is not actually poison, but more like the beast that bit Grimm left many dangerous structures in his blood. Also that, what the master used to cure him was something that he had started working on 20 years ago, but almost no one has ever needed it. What if the structures in his blood is a reference to something like rabies? Mm. Yeah, I think so. It's a different way of saying rabies. And they may not have that kind of like medical terminology and stuff. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about that the other day. Master Ferris then inspects Grimm's wound without undoing any of the bandages. When Grimm asks about it, Ferris basically says he can see it fine, then tries to leave the room after congratulating himself on a job well done, but gets stuck at the door. Grimm opens it for him, and the master thanks him, but says that he's got no more time to waste on Grimm's education. The chapter ends with a very foreboding message from the Etherealist. So here's how the chapter ends. We've really no more time to waste upon your education, Captain. No, Grimm asked, and why not? And in an instant, the old man changed. His previously animated voice went low and steady. Something shifted in his spine and shoulders, conveying a sense of perfect confidence and strength, wildly at odds with his innocuous stature. And most of all, his eyes changed. And most of all, his eyes changed. The sparkle in them transformed distilled itself into a muted fire that met Grimm's gaze without expectation or weakness. Grimm became abruptly certain that he was standing before a very dangerous man. Because, Francis Madison Grimm, we've come to the end, Master Ferris said. The end? Of what? Of the beginning, of course, the Etherealist said. The end of the beginning. What did you think of that ending where this goofy etherealist guy who can't open a door all of a sudden gets like offended or something, something triggers in his brain and he turns into like, like Gandalf when Gandalf is like, don't tell me I'm a parlor of cheap tricks or whatever. You know what I mean? I love the, the mysteriousness of it, right? The, the sense of, okay, what just happened? And it's almost like, because I did this in one of my books, I actually had a character break the fourth wall. And uh, the, the narrator, the narratorial voice was describing the scene. And my one character cuts off the narrator. He's like, I'll be the only omniscient one here. Must you, you not interrupt me again? Something like that, right? And I think it was along those lines. And at this point, I was like, it's the end of the beginning. So we basically just finished the intro of the book. Yes, that's what I got from that as well. I love that. If that's how Jim Butcher intended it, I don't know if you can tweak just this segment to Jim Butcher, but if that is how he intended it, it's fucking genius. I don't think anyone has pointed that out, that that particular style. 
I agree with you that it is the end of the beginning of this book, almost like a late title card. But the way you describe it as saying it's almost fourth wall breaking and knowing what we know or not knowing what we know, but seeing these etherealists as people that can see things that other people can't see. Uh, Master Ferris was able to observe his work on Grimm's wound without even unwrapping the bandages. And if we go back, let's go back to the that that page. Um, I'll pull it up here. Let me just uh, pull this thing up, and we'll take a look at it. So it what was it, Ma- Master Ferris? If you don't mind me asking, how exactly are you examining me? Surely you can't see the wound from out there. Untrue, Ferris said. From out here, I can see little else. There, done. I do good work, if I do say so myself. Surely you can't see the wound from out there, as in, you're not even looking at it. You can't see the wound itself. And he says, untrue, from out here, I can see little else. And that's kind of like, that. I really like how you're going with it, where he can see stuff that, other people can't see maybe even things that like the reader can't see maybe, you know, so like he's connecting to a different, a different view of the world that normal people can't see. But maybe by him saying it's the end of the beginning is like him kind of connecting and breaking the fourth wall. I like that. I don't know how to connect it, but I like that concept. I like this chapter's sense of mystery. Uh, everything about this chapter so far has me going, okay, first of all, who's Ferris? Who's Folly? Um, why is Bayard so dangerous? How did he get that good? What were these creatures that attacked them? Uh, how how powerful are these etherealists? Like, it's got me asking all these questions. Yeah, how does their magic work? Now, but now look at this. Butcher paid off. Showed us the showed us the fight. Yep. Right. And now, now he gave us a bunch more promises. Find out what an etherealist is. Going to find out why this guy knows so much. What the hell's going on with Folly? Stick with me because I'm going to show you. Yeah, and I think that's something that I need to take heed because I did not like this part of the chapter. Oh, I was I, I was not a fan. I found it to be too uh, confusing, personally. Okay. And so I found it to be... Like, the, the thing is... Let's see. Did I write something about this? I think I did. Okay, so why am I not hot for this chapter? I'm getting very antsy for a direction, okay? Yeah. yeah. At this point, we're 90 pages in. I think that the... the the chapter ends on page 89 and we still don't have, like we got some really good setup of some really cool characters. It's the end of the beginning, but what are we doing? You know what I mean? Like we got a fight now. Uh, Grim is injured, injured bad. Okay. He's got his arm next to him now, which I actually like that a lot that he's injured. What's up? What are you, you're like, I got a prediction. Go ahead. He's not going to be able to captain anymore, so he's going to go to the academy and he's going to start training these newbies. Let's fucking go, lads! That would be freaking awesome, go. wouldn't it? That would be really cool to have Captain Grimm, the madman himself, mm-hmm. training these newbies. Oh, that would be just so wonderful. Uh, but I'm not seeing a direction yet. So at the end of this chapter, when he finally does say, it is the end of the beginning... It's like, okay, glad that we're now going to chapter nine because now I want to see where the F we're going. Great setup. Wonderful setup. I think the problem I have with it is just that there are so many characters that he's setting up 
one right after the other instead of introducing them later into the story that I got a little fatigued by this point. And so then when on the very end of my fatigue, we get these confusing characters that aren't really saying anything that kind of pissed me off because I know Jim can do better than that. So this is the example, the cats versus the etherealists. When we had the cats and Raul in that chapter, they were saying shit that we didn't understand, but it was cool because that's cats. You know what I mean? They were giving us information without spoiling anything. And I appreciated that. That was really an interesting insight. But with humans, for some reason, because they're human, it's like, okay, if you are an etherealist and this makes you crazy or something, now the things that you're giving me must have more meaning, right? They must be very deep. Well, let's look at some of the crap that they were talking about. Let's look a little deeper, if you don't mind. So let me pull up the book and let's go to, here's one. So when, when talking to Folly, uh, this is when uh, Folly's like, hey, you're not wearing a shirt and you should probably wear one, but not actually saying it to him. And Grimm says, and this is when Grimm's being patient with her and says, ah, oh, please excuse me, young lady. I seem to have lost my shirt. And then she goes, he thinks I'm a lady, she said, and beamed at him. That's quite unusual in my experience. Grim racked his mind for a proper thing to say in such circumstance and found little. To be called a lady? Thinking, the young woman said. Now here, in some, here is some fresh soup, which doesn't taste very good, but he should eat it all because the poison thinks it's even worse. Okay, so this is on page... What, what, what page are we on? This is on page 83, okay? Are you there? 83. Okay, so it starts with the, oh, please excuse me, young lady. I seem to have lost my shirt. Okay, so now we're dealing with etherealists that are going to, if it's the same thing as cats, it should give us some really good insight. He thinks I'm a lady, she said, and that's quite unusual. And what's unusual? To be called a lady? No, thinking. Okay, so he thinks I'm a lady. Him thinking that she's a lady. The thinking part is the weird thing to her that people would think, okay, that's fine. If she's like, you know, has issues with like communicating with people and like most people she meets don't really think maybe that's like a little deeper thing of her, her experience, people judging her right away or something. Oh, she's so smart. She's at a different level of existence. Exactly. But then she says, that's weird. So now here's some fresh soup, which doesn't taste very good, but you should eat it all because the poison thinks it's even worse. So she just said thinking's weird, but that the poison itself is thinking. And it's like, okay, so this poison's thinking. What, it, you know, like, ooh, okay. So now she's got a little insight into this. What does that mean? It means nothing. You know what I mean? It's it's a it's a cure. I, it was a lot to offer you without any explanation. Yes. And I think I think you got caught up in it because you wanted to understand it right from the beginning. Well, I wanted not necessarily. Yes, I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand. That. I like that the the puzzle aspect, the yeah. interaction that I have with the book. But then give me something more substantial than just they're weird, you know. So here's another one. Um, so this is when she looks at him. She glances at him. He grabs her arm. She, she gives him a quick glance. And she says, oh, she breathed. That's so sad. After she looks at Grimm. So she sees something in Grimm that we don't see. Something sad. And we can kind of gather that, you know, from the previous chapters. He's got a rough yeah. past. Yeah. Who are you speaking to, child? And then she says... He doesn't know I'm talking to you, the girl said, 
The fingertips of her free hand rose to the crystals in the little bottle around her neck. How can he hear me without realizing something so simple? He doesn't realize I'm talking to you. How can he hear me without realizing something so simple? It's like two people are speaking through her. It's like two people are speaking through her, but she's grabbing at her crystal. So she's almost like maybe there's something in the crystal or whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But when she says, how can he hear me without realizing something so simple? You're saying it out loud, Folly. So you're just, so the issue here with, for me is. Folly's not saying it. The other being is. Okay, so that's it's like what multiple I, that's personality. What I yeah, I took that as there was another being or another spirit speaking through folly in that moment. Like, like, how can he hear me talk and not realize that something else is here? That's how I took that. And then he says, oh, forgive me, child. I didn't realize you're an etherealist. And then she goes, he thinks I'm the master, the girl said. How can he be so clever and so stupid all at once? That's kind of a, like a funny line. But yeah, because like, the master is also an etherealist. But isn't she also person. an etherealist? Like so why? What? So what? Grim didn't say, are you the are you the master etherealist? He said, you're an etherealist. And she's like, oh, he thinks I'm the master. No, Folly. He just thinks you maybe are what it, you maybe are. It wasn't, maybe it wasn't Folly speaking. Maybe it was the other being. And that could be. And the thing is, I would have much rather... I wanted something more tangible. Yes, throw in the weird stuff here. But then I wanted something more that I could connect in my head. And it came right. off as just weird to be weird. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this goes going forward because this chapter threw a lot of curves. Let's talk about the poison and then that and then we'll wrap it up. So the Ethereal nodded. This is when he's talking to Master Ferris. Today I am the physician with the cure to a condition hardly ever, hardly anyone ever contracts. If you'd asked me 20 years ago, I'd have told you it seemed a very poor long-term investment with very little commercial viability. Hmm. But here we are. So this is something the guy has been studying for a long time or had produced a long time ago, which is cool. But then Grimm asks, okay, so it's a poison? And Ferris waggled his hand back and forth. Yes, no. Actually, not even remotely, but for purposes of this conversation, yes. Grim frowned. Uh, um, am I in danger? You're dead as a stone, man. I am? Yes. No, actually, not even remotely, but for the purposes of this conversation, yes. What is he saying? So, like, oh, okay, you're dead as a stone. That Maybe that's like, you know, his emotions are dead as a stone or something. You know, I'm going deep, I'm going deep. Well, what did the what I the heck is he talking about? I took it as without a treatment or without this thing oh, that okay. I've been for twenty years, you're dead already. That That's makes much more sense. Like like without this thing I've been working on for twenty years, for the purposes of this conversation, you are dead. There is no survival. It's like, dude, if you get rabies and don't get treated, you're either going to be a vegetable or you're probably going to die. Okay, I am turning around on this chapter. Because there's a lot of hidden implied understanding of certain things. And I could be totally wrong and that's fine if I am, but it's how I interpreted it. I like your interpretation. It makes me feel a lot better because then that makes sense when he's talking about how it's a poison, but it's not actually a poison. But for the purposes of this conversation is a poison. Then it makes sense to say, am I in danger? He's like, oh yeah, you're dead. Well, you're not dead. You're not actually dead because I used the cure, but for what we're talking about right now, yes, you would be dead. 
you know like nobody knows that this exists like i basically just saved you from something that should have killed you yeah i like that much more now and this is why it's good to buddy read books and talk about books this is what i miss about middle school when you we used to be able to go to the lunch table and oh shit it's pizza friday hell yeah dude what have you guys been playing? Oh, I played Final Fantasy VII. Did you get to the part with Ares and Sephiroth? You know what I mean? Like, And we would just sit there and talk for hours and hours about different stories, different games, things that we liked, things we didn't like, the Cowboy Bebop episode on, you know, Toonami, you know, all that stuff. And it was a good way of sorting things out. Now as an adult, we read stuff, and it's like either you get it or you don't, go yeah. to the next chapter. And so I appreciate that you're able to to clear that up for me, because I was really down on that. That I got pissed off when he says, it's the end. The end of what? Of the beginning, of course. The ethereal said, the end of the beginning. So it's like another one of those, like, he's not saying anything. He's just letting us know. But the way that you described it is kind of fourth wall breaking in. They're ethereal, so maybe they're kind of like talking to us in a way, but they're also talking to Grim. I liked that take like on you it. Made it. Now here's some payoffs coming up. Yeah. I like that. So now I'm looking forward to chapter nine. I mean, I was, it's not that I wasn't looking forward to it, but I, a little pissed off. I didn't like those two characters. And For then real. that makes more sense when he says in the beginning, like, um, have I met you before? And the etherealist master Ferris says, you have not, not until tomorrow. So anyway, until tomorrow, you guys, thanks for listening to random book club podcast. Check you guys next time.